From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. The best way to build diversity into your organization is to do it from the start. Because in the start, you have to fill all the roles. You need everything. So therefore, if you're trying to hire a diverse workforce, diverse leadership team, diverse board, you can take all kinds of skill sets on because you need all kinds of skill sets. Hi, folks. Justin Schreiber here. On today's show, I'm joined by Shelley Archambault. Shelley became one of Silicon Valley's first African-American CEOs when she took the helm at Metricstream. After a phenomenal run, she now sits on the board of revered companies such as Nordstrom, Verizon, and Okta. In today's podcast, we'll dissect the playbook that Shelly used to transform Metricstream from a floundering company on the brink of failure to a pioneer and leader in the governance, risk, and compliance sector. We'll also talk about practical approaches that companies large and small can take to develop more diverse and inclusive cultures and why Shelley felt compelled to write her book, Unapologetically Ambitious. Along the way, we'll chat about how she turned childhood adversity into strengths that fueled her extraordinary career. Let's jump into the conversation. Shelley, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Justin. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. And one of the things that I'm really excited to talk to you about is this amazing turnaround that you were able to engineer at Metricstream. Not only did you have phenomenal success coming out of that, but I love the way that you articulate the steps that you walked through in order to make that happen. I think though, before we get into that, it's really important to talk a little bit about your backstory. Ah, so I was one of four children and my parents were crazy. They had four of us in less than five years. So therefore we were a very close family, but a very competitive family. So the competitive piece definitely plays roles going forward. Um, My father um, moved us around a lot as he kept trying to build his career and and grow. So we found ourselves, you know, the first set of moves up to elementary school um, ended us in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And then from Philadelphia, we moved out to California. We moved to a suburb of California that unfortunately was pretty homogeneous in that I was the only black girl in my class. And unfortunately, this was back in the 60s. And in the 60s, uh, it was a turbulent time. A lot of civil rights issues going on. Actually, some things that are going on right now that remind you of the 60s. But for everybody that was for civil rights, you had people against them. And frankly, as a little black girl growing up in a suburb, you know, not far from where the Watts riots were and everything else, uh, people made it very clear that I was not wanted and that there wasn't going to be much out there for me. So I learned very early in life that the odds weren't in my favor and that if I wanted something, then I couldn't just do what everybody else did because then the odds would be I wouldn't get what I wanted. And my parents tried to be super practical. So they told us right from the get-go that life isn't fair. You know, you come home as a kid and say, it's not fair this happened or that happened or whatever. And instead of being, you know, consoling and hugging and saying, oh, that's terrible, my parents would say, you're right. It's not. Life is not fair. And so what are you going to do about it? And so therefore, from a 
building block standpoint, those two things combined just set the stage for me to be very intentional and figure out how to improve my odds every step of the way. Was you went on and ultimately got an education at Wharton, a wonderful school. Was that always part of the program or, or part of the plan in your mind? Once I decided that I wanted to run a business, yes. So in high school, I actually decided I wanted to run a business. I loved running clubs. You know, every organization I got engaged in, and by the way, I was in a lot of them, uh, American Feral Service, the French Club, National Honor Society, even Girl Scouts. I mean, you name it, and I was engaged. And eventually, I'd end up leading it in some way. And I enjoyed that. And I had a guidance counselor who, frankly, said to me, well, if you like running clubs, then you'll love running businesses. Because businesses, you know, running a club, pull people together to a common objective, right? And go execute. And I said, done. So at 16, I decided I wanted to be a CEO of a business because CEOs was the name of the title of the people who ran the business. <laughs> so naive. <laughs> I, I think at one point I actually heard you mention that you wanted to be the CEO of IBM. Yes. So IBM, that came, I decided that when I was in college. Uh, but I picked Wharton, back to the Wharton story. I picked Wharton because at the time, Wharton was the, and I think it still is, was the number one ranked undergraduate business school. And so I wanted credibility. You know, how do I improve my odds? Well, get the best credential you possibly can. And so for me, it was going to Wharton. It was the only school I applied to. I said, please take me. I don't want to go anywhere else. Literally, I wrote that at the bottom of my application. Um, and then, um, yes, as I was listening you know, one of the things that I heard is if you're ambitious and you have aspirations, then pick industries that are growing because industries that are growing are filled with companies that are growing and growing companies. You tend to have more opportunity for growth and advancement because they never have enough resources given the demands on their business. And I said, great. So I looked around and frankly, IBM was kind of the apple of its day. And I decided technology was the industry because it was growing. So I said, fine, I'll go be CEO of IBM. There's a great quote. I always come back to it. In the mind of the beginner, possibilities are endless. In the mind of the expert, possibilities are few. <laughs> I love it. So, so I love the <laughs> fact that early, early in your education, you say, CEO of IBM, not a problem. I'm going for it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then I show up. So here I am and I'm starting out in sales, which, oh, by the way, people, my friends thought was absolutely crazy. Wait a minute. You went to Wharton, you got your degree and you're going to sell computers. What? You know, all of them were going after Procter & Gamble product managers or international finance or investment bankers on Wall Street. Right. I mean, all these sexy, great titles. And I'm going to go peddle computers. So they thought that was absolutely nuts. But I done my work or my research, and it turned out every single CEO at IBM started out in sales. So I figured that was the path to power. So I started out in sales. <laughs> now, this actually wasn't your first foray at IBM. I understand you had a job at IBM even before you graduated. Tell us a little bit about that. I did. I was working as a, as a what were they called? A sales assistant. So basically, my job was to help salespeople. I did everything from demos on products, right, to arrange sales meetings, to those those kinds of things. Anything that was required around in and around sales, and um, it was it was actually a fantastic experience. But I was working a lot. You know, I worked like 20 hours a week, which is a lot when you're carrying in terms of the, the full load. But 
again, I was ambitious. I had bills to pay and money to save, and therefore I was working pretty hard. And can you talk a little bit about the experience that you had? I believe you were a substitute to the secretaries. Ah, that job. Yes, yes. And and that's what they called them back in the day were secretaries. It was. It was. So you're right. That was actually the first job. I skipped over that. That was the first job. So the first job I had at IBM was between my senior year and freshman year in college. And it was working at one of their headquarters locations where literally I was a secretary substitute. So when secretaries took vacations, I would go and cover their desks. And when I got there, I was really fortunate. You know, I had a manager, of course, who showed me the lay of the land, et cetera, and asked me what I wanted to do. And I told her I wanted to one day run a business. Um, and she said, okay, well, you're ambitious. You know, you're here, spend the summer. There's lots of people here doing very interesting jobs. Take advantage of it. Talk to them. I'm sure they'd be happy to tell you what they do. And I thought, what a great idea. So here I am taking over a desks of, of course, executives, because they're the ones with secretaries. And I have the corporate directory. So I sat there and literally went down the directory. Hmm, vice president of logistics planning. Wonder what they do. Hello, my name's Shelly Archambault, and I'm here for the summer. And I'd really like to know what you want to do, you know, what you do, da 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 because I'm on my way to Wharton. And anyway, I literally spent my summer dialing like that, calling people up, and you'd be amazed. But most people would take the time. Some would actually take me to lunch, right? Others would tell me to come by and see them. It was wonderful. So I got a chance to actually see and understand a lot of different things. Now, trust me, a lot of it went over my head, but it still gave me a great perspective of business and really helped me solidify that, yes, I was making the right choice. Just to connect two experiences, you're with your guidance counselor. They plant this seed about business, about being a CEO. You really listened to that. Not only did you listen to that, but that became your life plan at that point. You're then at IBM. Most people would have probably figured, what can I do to get out of here at the end of the day as quickly as possible? You, on the other hand, figure out a way to get to all the VPs and start to interview them and ask questions. Again, listening very keenly to the advice that they provide. What impact has that skill of deep listening had for you in your career? Oh, it's been huge. Absolutely huge, Justin. You know, I like to say advice and learning fall from the sky. I mean, literally, if you listen hard enough, it's coming all the time. But for most people, it just lands flat on the ground, flat. But I try to listen hard. So even picking IBM as a permanent career option, you know, that came because I don't even know who told me that. But I remember hearing that if you go into industries that are growing, right, you have better opportunities. So I've always tried very hard to listen. And honestly, this also came as part of my growing up, you know, listening hard was also a way to protect myself because I needed to know whether people really meant what they said or they didn't. I needed to know, right, what undercurrents might exist. So listening was something, a skill that I actually developed from a young age really as a way to protect myself. And then I've been able to leverage it and really use it in my own personal growth and development. You received an amazing education at IBM. You were there for 15 years. At some point, though, you decided it was time to leave. A couple of different steps, but ultimately you landed as the CEO of Metricstream. And I want to talk a little bit about this story because it's an amazing turnaround story. We really need to get into 
what the state of the company was when you arrived, what it was when you left, and how you got from point A to point B. You want to just lay the lay out the landscape for us? Sure. Well, you have to roll the clock back. So this is now late 2002, and I'm ready for my CEO job. I've done all the things I expected. I talked to people, and yes, they told me, yes, I had the skill sets, yes, I was ready. All that's great, except the environment was terrible, terrible. It was terrible because the dot-com bubble had burst in 2001, and all of these companies, especially startups, had gone out of business or were going out of business. So you ended up with a lot of people from the Valley that were CEOs looking for new jobs. Well, I'm looking for a job too, and I'm not from the Valley, and I'm not an engineer, and I don't necessarily look like the normal CEO in Silicon Valley. So all those things are, again, odds are not in my favor. So I said, okay, I'm not gonna get an A play. A play means a company that is, the investors believe is absolutely gonna work. Because they'll give that to people that they know. But I've spent my whole career fixing things, turning things around. I said, you know what, let me go find a B or C play, a problem child, but one that is being invested in and supported by top tier venture firms. And that I think I can actually turn around. And so enter, it was actually called Zaplet at the time. And you can see why we changed the name, but it's called Zaplet. And Zaplet was perfect in that it was completely broken. (laughs) So here was a Kleiner Perkins uh, invested company. They had, they'd raised $100 million during the peak of the bubble. By the time I got there, I want to say they had less than $10 million in the bank. They were burning million plus a quarter, and they hadn't sold to new customers in quarters. Um, so they were in tough straits. And to me, it was perfect. <laughs> it was a, so that was the job that I took. So what this meant was, We had to figure out quickly how to turn this company around. So first step that you do is, number one, stop the bleeding. So we cut back and did all that we could do to buy time. And then it's all about finding a problem to solve. So I spent the time talking to the smartest people, the most future thinking people that I could find or get to and asking them, not what should I do? but asking them, tell me about the big problems that aren't being solved. What are companies struggling with, you know, et cetera. And honestly, that's where I got this compliance and risk management from. And actually the first person to say it was Roger McNamee. Um, So I still credit Roger to this day, but he said, I don't know what the heck you do about it, but this whole compliance thing, you know, companies are spending a lot of money, fines are huge and it's just a mess. I thought, perfect. So what can we do to solve this area? solve this problem. And then went back and looked at our technology and said, all right, we can actually leverage technology that's been built, but we need need to now build apps on top of it to solve problems, et cetera. Well, I don't have money. I don't have the right team. So this is a great idea, but I don't have the right starting point. So partnering with Vinod, found another company smaller than us that we could put the two together to strengthen the skills and capabilities and then used our platform of going after this new market to go raise money, to say, hey, let's restart. And hence was born Metricstream. So we now have problem to solve. We now have some money, but it's basically a restart. So we're starting up again. We've got to build apps. We've got to find customers. We've got to do all of those things. Um, And 
we, you know, we did, we did, we started hiring people, you know, and this is where inspiration really matters because they're joining a company that's struggling and doesn't have a great history. So you have to convince them of the vision, bring them in board and start building the apps. Then we got to go out there and find those, I call them cowbell customers, find those customers that are big enough that when somebody, when you tell somebody, oh, well, XYZ is our customer, they're like, oh, well, if you can do it for them, you can do it for us. So get out there, go evangelize, find those first few customers, make them successful, and then the hard work starts of just great. Now let's rinse and repeat and build, right, the capability. So, you know, we did, and we evangelized, we got it going, and finally, in like 2008, first quarter, Gartner, which is one of the big industry analysts, says, oh, there is a brand new market space, and it is called Governance, Risk, and Compliance, and metric stream is a leader. And it's like, yes, we did it, right? We did it, finally. Our phones are ringing off the hook. People, companies are calling. They want our software. They want to learn about us because now we're on the map. And we're like, great. We invest in sales. We invest in marketing. We invest in deployment people. We're like gonna on our growth trajectory. We're going to raise money in 2009. And then smash, right? Q4 2008, you're like, oh, oh. Right. Everything's gone. So we get into 2009 and now we're living on fumes because we had spent the money expecting the growth. We didn't expect the market to stop. And now it is stopped. So sales slowed, cash slowed, all those things. So now we face the question a lot of companies did again. It's like, man, again, are we going to fight it out or are we going to fold? Got together the leadership team. We looked at each other and it's like, we're going to fight it out. And one of my execs said, never say die. And I said, you know what? Never say die. And that became part of our company mantra. We have four. We had three. And then we added a fourth element to our culture. And the fourth one was never say die. We are going to figure out how to make it, whatever the it is, happen, no matter what. And the good news is with an amazing team and with the right solution set that we were building, we did. We did with no money. We doubled in 20, 2009 and ultimately became not only the leader in terms of the U.S., but we became a global leader in, in governance, risk and compliance. MetroStream still has customers all over the world and is still ranked by all the industry analysts as a leader in governance, risk and compliance. Well, congratulations on an amazing turnaround. There's so much to that story that I want to dig into. Let's go back to the very first step, though. You started by identifying a problem. In my experience, not all problems are equal. As you thought about finding the problem that you wanted to anchor the company on, what criteria did you use to make sure that you focused on the right problem? Wanted a problem that was a must-solve problem, not a it-would-be-nice-to-solve problem. Wanted a problem whose cost, right, the cost that it um, that it created for companies was significant enough that would then enable them to be willing to spend dollars to solve it. So must solve problem that costs them a lot. And those were, that was really the two things. And then a problem that we could solve leveraging the, you know, the software base that I had. So, but that was secondary first find the problem and then figure out if you can, if you can do that. So yes, that's how that's how we found the problem. So you find the problem and then step 2 is you've got to you've got to bring the solution to market. You decided that you didn't have enough tech 
within the company walls to solve the problem, you decide to acquire a company. Many companies go down the path of acquisition thinking, oh, this is a quick way to generate more revenue or to enhance our base. And then they end up completely failing because that 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 acquisition is a failure. Any advice that you have as companies think about acquisition, what makes a great acquisition versus the acquisitions that crash and burn? Absolutely. And first, whether you talk about acquisition or even merger, right? It's the same issues. Ours was really a merger. We were a little bigger, but it was really a merger. And the reason I say merger is that I think it's important. Um, it's a, words are important. And by saying that, it means we're coming together, right? Not acquiring you, not acquiring, we're coming together. Uh, the first step was I spent an incredible amount of time with the CEO of the company whose name was Metricstream, which is why we took that name instead of the Zappola name. Um, with the CEO of the company, we spent an incredible amount of time together. And honestly, I tell people, this is like marriage, okay? So you don't like have two nice meetings, share some documents and say, okay, let's be married for the next 50 years. No, you gotta spend the time because you've gotta figure out, all right, do we have the same vision? Do we have the same vision for what we're trying to create? Do we have similar values, right? And styles that are at least complementary. Do we, what do we bring, you know, to the table? And all of that takes time. I've never seen a shortcut to figuring all that out. So first is just spending a, a lot of time with the CEO and making sure those things are all in place. And then once you pull it together, it's truly integrating, you know, the organization. So making sure leadership, you know, you see each other on both sides, et cetera, as you figure out technologies is what you're doing. And so all of those things are, are really important. And you have to communicate a lot, a lot. If you think you're communicating a lot, communicate another 20% more. People are unsettled. They're unsettled when they're coming into a new environment. And so if you don't fill the vacuum, the vacuum will get filled. All right. Step three, you have this company in your sights. Now you got to come up with the capital to buy it. You yourself admit, though, that you're out of cash. You got a hundred million in this company already. It's a B, maybe a C company. And so you got to recap the company and figure out how to raise more money. How did you do that? And also, how did you figure out how to do that? Yeah. So here's, here's where I call it. You got to build your network, right? And leverage your network. So when I became CEO, I realized quickly why everybody says, Oh, it's a lonely job, the whole bit. Because bottom line, you don't have peers. Everybody either works for you or you work for them. So you can't go and have those conversations with your different people who work for you because then you're showing favorites, you know, what happened. It, it just doesn't work. So I said, all right, this isn't going to work for me because I need peers. I know me. So I went and put together a group of other CEOs. I chose women, all women who were building companies in Silicon Valley, and we became each other's peers. So when I had to do this recap, even though I hadn't done it, reached out to my group. Okay, I've got to recap the cap table. Who can help me? Da, 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 da. And so people who had done it, right, helped me with how to think about it, how to structure it. So I could at least go into the board the first time with, all right, here's how we're thinking about this. And I'll tell you, people talk about having mentors. And most people think of mentors as people to help you figure out what you want to go do next, you know, help you with your career, growing your career, building your career. I think it's just as important to actually have mentors or advisors, whatever you want to call them, to help you do the job you've got. Because you can't move forward until you ace 
what you've got responsibility for. So that was my that was my group and made a made a huge difference because there are a number of things, even though I I mean, I'd run organizations, billions of dollars, you know, billions of dollars of revenue. And all absolutely. But when you're running a business. You have responsibility for things that, frankly, you haven't done before. And that's okay. So don't act like you have. Don't fake it. You know, go find somebody who has and have them educate you on it. Step four, then, you've got to build the right team in order to bring this vision to life. What was the profile of the person that you were looking for? And how did you figure out if an individual had what you needed? Mm. So I like people who are athletes when building a small company, building an organization. Let me explain what I mean by athletes, because I really not don't mean a soccer player or a football player. Uh, what I mean is people who actually bring to the table a core set of skills that as long as they know the rules, they can play any position. Doesn't mean they'll be the best at it, but you can put them in, right? Put me in, coach. You, you can put them in a role and they will figure it out quickly. So when building a company, especially when you're starting from the ground up, I think it's really important to have athletes because you're going to need people to do different things at different times. Uh, and so at that stage, looking for athletes, also looking for people who, frankly, have a lot of ambition, have the self-motivation, the self-drive, uh, looking for people who want to be part of a winning team. So those are those are the overall criteria before you get into what you need for specific roles. It's a great it's a great breakdown on the profile, though. That was a fascinating story, and obviously the results speak for themselves. I also wanted to talk a little bit about what it means to you. You're one of the few African-American female CEOs in Silicon Valley. What does that mean to you and what responsibility does it carry? Hmm. It means that I'm very visible, <laughs> right? Because not a lot of people look like me, so therefore I, I do I do stand out. Uh, but what it also means is that I carry additional responsibility, and that additional responsibility is I feel compelled to actually be seen. So that means saying yes to speeches, panel participation, right? Invol involvement in different organizations, et cetera. And I feel compelled because I want people to see that, hey, it can happen. If, if I can be CEO of a tech company, then anybody can be CEO of a tech company. Whereas it's easy to say no to those things if I don't have extra reasons to say yes, because frankly, when you're building a company, it takes up so much time and energy, you have a reason to say, oh no, I'm heads down, I have no time, and people would get that. But I didn't. So it was definitely extra effort on my part because you are being pulled, right? To play the role, to be visible. Um, so that's, that's definitely one of them. As you address individuals from underrepresented groups, what advice do you give them related to their career? Oh, be intentional. Realize that you are the only one who can optimize for your career. You know, one of the things that I like to say is you would never go and spend $2,000 for an airline ticket. Pack your bags, get on the plane, set everything down, buckle up, and then turn to the pilot and say, so... Where are we going? Right? That's ludicrous. Nobody would do that. 
But people do that with their careers all the time. They spend all this money, effort, and time getting educated, getting skill sets, getting experience, the whole bit. And then they let the company or their manager or a mentor decide what they should do and where they should go. No, no, you've got to be intentional. If you're intentional, then you can actually put a plan in place to actually to achieve your goals. And then you can make decisions that actually work towards your plan and your objective versus just following somebody else's perspective around. Diversity inclusion is a topic that is on the mind of many leaders right now. In your mind, where does that topic sit on the list of priorities for a CEO? Oh, I think it's right up there. It's part of the strategy. I mean, companies companies have a fiduciary responsibility to deliver returns to their shareholders, to be a contributor to their environment, to support and develop their employees, right? And to protect and support their customers, right? Companies have all these responsibilities. Well, studies have shown over and over and over, over and over and over and over again, that diversity actually helps companies create better returns and better results. I mean, Goldman Sachs made that very clear last year when they said, we're not taking a company public if we don't see diversity on the board. No. They're in the business of making money, right? They don't do that if they don't think there's a reason. Um, so when we think about the strategy for the company, it should be part and parcel. And for good CEOs, it is. You are in a unique position in that you, you're on the board of large companies, Verizon. Uh, you're on the board of smaller companies, Okta. So you've seen the growth struggles that these smaller companies have and the struggles that bigger companies have. How is your advice different as you speak with large companies related to building a diverse and inclusive culture versus a smaller company that may be just starting off in their trajectory? Honestly, it's it's not that different, but I do think smaller companies have it easier. And the reason I think they have it easier is the best way to build diversity into your organization is to do it from the start. Because in the start, you have to fill all the roles. You need everything. So therefore, if you're trying to hire a diverse workforce, diverse leadership team, diverse board, you can take all kinds of skill sets on because you need all kinds of skill sets. Whereas once you've actually done all that and you're now mature and you're big, whatever, then you're waiting for a particular role. Well, now what I need for my board is a skill set that is someone who has international experience, is a financial exec, has, you know, you have all these things, right, that suddenly... The aperture for what's available is suddenly very, very thin because you've already filled everything else, right? So it's not a matter of there aren't people that are qualified out there. It's the fact that we've suddenly got these narrow apertures. Same is true in hiring executives and people. Suddenly I'm, well, gosh, the only role I have is this particular job versus the 50 jobs you would have had if you had thought about it from the start. One other question I've got related to diversity and inclusion, there are some very important discussions that are happening in society today uh, related to uh, racial relations and some some horrible things that are happening as well. What responsibility do corporations have with respect to participating in that dialogue and also leading in finding solutions to those challenges? Yes, I actually think they have a real responsibility. I've written on this. I talk about this. One of the 
aspects, frankly, that makes me encouraged this time. And I say this time as compared to the 60s. In the 60s, businesses very much sat on the sideline. Though this is not our problem. It's not our problem. It's government's problem. But this time, companies are realizing, oh, wait a minute. These people who are being treated, you know, as less than citizens and are having all these issues and struggles, they're like our employees. Okay. Part of our job is to support all of our employees. So therefore, businesses absolutely have a responsibility. And the good news is I do see many of them indeed trying to take responsibility and get engaged. But I believe every business has a responsibility to get engaged. And there is so much more power that businesses have than they even realize, especially at the local level. I'm not saying a business should go out there and try to solve something nationally. No, just focus locally. You pay taxes. You pay a lot of taxes. Mayors are going to pay attention to you. So sharing with them what is actually important to you as a business and the community, right? They will listen. And oh, by the way, if you get together with the other businesses and you do it collectively, you have even more power. So I think businesses should absolutely use their power to drive change that impacts the welfare, livelihood, and safety of their employees. Let's shift gears a little bit. I know that a topic that's really important to you is compassionate leadership. I've actually heard you use that phrase in the past. And maybe before we get into your current philosophy about that, I'd love to go back again to your childhood. You've shared with me a few stories about teachers who made a difference in your life. Could you talk a little bit about them and how they shaped your identity and how you've carried that forward to the present? Oh, absolutely. So frankly, the first one was a teacher by the name of Mrs. Lutzinger, and she was my third grade teacher. So here I am in the environment that I highlighted uh, that was quite, um, quite challenging. And I had pretty much withdrawn as a kid, but she saw something in me. I have no idea what, Um, but long story short, after having an experience in one of her classes where I'd made a mistake and the kids were all, you know, teasing me and laughing and I was just falling inward again, she actually offered, um, reached out to my mother and said, would Shelly like to take horseback riding lessons? And she had a farm and had a horses and the whole bit. And so I did. And I will tell you, being by myself on top of this huge horse, right, looking out over things, there was something that that really resonated in me of being able to lead and ride and be successful that started to actually build a confidence that, you know what, I am capable of doing something. So she was she played a pivotal role in terms of me for sure as a kid. And then the next one was probably Mrs. Mizrahi in fifth grade. I had been accepted into the gifted and talented program and then everybody got tested again because there was a problem. And the only student that didn't get readmitted was me. I was also the only black girl in the class. Um, But um, anyway, but I enjoyed school and I was good at math and I was competitive. And Mrs. Mizrahi saw this. And so one of the things that she said to me is, Shelly, if you get your math done faster than anybody else, you can actually help others get theirs done. And I loved that. So I would rush through to be the first one finished so I could go help others. And that whole helping thing really 
has been a foundation of how I've lived my whole life. I am always trying to be helpful and to give because what I learned was being helpful, people appreciate. And so suddenly you can actually create a relationship um, that you might not have been able to create before as people get to know you in a different light. How did those experiences shape your perspective on leadership? Mm. Well, back to the helping. My leadership style is one of servant leader. So I believe that my job is to support the team. And if the team is successful, then I'll be successful. So supporting the team is whatever is required, inspiring, it's coaching, it's moving obstacles out of the way, it's rolling up the sleeves if that's what you have to do at the moment. Um, but a servant leader is really my style. I get my biggest joy when people who have worked for me or work for me accomplish even more than they think they could accomplish, right? Or go on to take significant leadership roles. So that's that's definitely been my my experience and it's definitely come from the whole value of helping and helping others. You have a new book. I'd love to understand where the inspiration for that book came from. Ah, so thank you for asking, Justin. Uh, the book is called Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. And the inspiration came because, and it goes back to helping, but I have tried my entire career to be accessible. I respond. People resend me an email, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever it might be. Eventually, I respond. And I used to be able to actually be able to meet with people or talk to people when they asked for that. But as I got more and more responsibility as I move forward in my career, I just didn't have time to meet with everybody. I still responded, but I couldn't meet. And I said, one day I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book so that I can share at scale lessons learned, strategies, approaches, how others can improve the odds for themselves to achieve their aspirations. So that's why I wrote the book. In the process of writing that book, what did you learn or rediscover about yourself? Oh, goodness. You know, it's funny. One of the things that happens is you go back and all the the memories, the feelings, all these different stages, they come back. <laughs> so it was actually a very emotional, frankly, experience. Uh, so I was actually, I was surprised in that I hadn't made connections with what had happened to me early on with how I approached life later in life before I actually wrote the book. And it wasn't so much that I ignored it. That's not what I mean. But I just hadn't delved in and spent time thinking about all those different elements. And when you're actually writing and putting things down, you, know, you can look back and say, huh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that seven-year-old Shelly. <laughs> so, uh, so that part was, was really kind of interesting. And I also realized just how many people helped me along the way. And I knew a lot of people did, which is why I've always tried to help myself. But it was, that was also very, very humbling um, and encouraging. Shelly, let me end on this question. When all is said and done, what made the difference? When all is said and done, what made the difference were my parents and my husband. I had two. My parents to help shepherd me through those growing years when so many challenges came through. And then my husband, who was absolutely my life partner and my biggest cheerleader and who built me up 
every time the world tried to tear me down. Shelly, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Justin. I enjoyed it. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.